Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander, and this is Majority 54, the podcast where we help the 54% of us who did not vote for Donald Trump talk to those of us who did about the most divisive issues in our country. Now, if you've been listening for the last few weeks, you know that I have a new co-host, my friend Ravi Gupta. But starting next week, we're going to begin having the occasional guest co-host. And our very first guest co-host next week is going to be Stacey Abrams. So you're not going to want to miss that because I think Stacey is going to be particularly awesome at this format. Now, before I kick it to Ravi, uh, just a, a, a housekeeping item. You can send us emails to let us know things that you'd like us to tackle on the show or comments, that kind of thing. You can email us at M54, which is majority 54, M54 at wondermedianetwork.com. Or, and this is our preference because we may use your voicemail on the air, if there's something that you want us to tackle, an argument that you're having, something you want help with, you can leave us a voicemail and we may play it on the show and then answer it. That number is 508 508- Six eight seven two five eight nine. It's five zero eight six eight seven two five eight nine. All right. With that, Ravi, what do you want to talk about? Well, of course, the biggest story this week is the coronavirus and its continued and alarming spread through parts of our country. But to avoid being repetitive from week to week, let's zero in on one particular aspect of the virus and its public policy. Let's talk this week about schools. Coronavirus cases continue to surge across the country. The president is making a full court press today for schools to begin reopening. The president tweeted out this morning that he disagrees with CDC guidelines on reopening schools, calling them tough and expensive. And he says that the CDC is asking schools to do very impractical things. He's also now threatening schools nationwide that he'll try to cut funding if they refuse to reopen on time. The schools will be open in the fall, and we hope that most Schools are going to be open. We don't want people to make political statements or do it for political reasons. They think it's going to be good for them politically, so they keep the schools closed. No way. So we're very much going to put pressure on uh, governors and everybody else to open the schools. Everyone agrees getting kids back in school is hugely important and a top priority. But how to do that when there are now rising cases in 35 states is a puzzle no school administrator has yet to figure out. So right now, cities and states around the country are debating whether and how to safely reopen schools this fall. And there are too many individual municipal and state decisions to track. But I'll give you a few key updates here. One is that Florida's top officials issued a sweeping executive order on Monday that requires all schools in the state to reopen their buildings for in-person instruction for the coming year. And that announcement comes, uh, and it came the same day that Trump tweeted out, and in all caps, uh, schools must open in the fall uh, with three exclamation points. And then in a later tweet, he said, 
that those hesitating to reopen schools amid the pandemic were politically motivated. And he called out, quote, corrupt Joe Biden and the Democrats who don't want to open schools in the fall for political reasons, not for health reasons. And they think it will help them in November. Wrong. The people get it, exclamation point. <laughs> so my prediction, and it doesn't take a bit of a leap to say this, is that this is going to be the next political flashpoint. We may already be there. I totally agree. And it's really interesting to think about this from Trump's perspective, right? Because this goes to, I mean, this, this could have been our misinformation. Uh, it's not, but it could have been, you know, this week in misinformation. Because what he's doing, he's lying when he says it's not for health reasons. First of all, I don't think the Democrats have stated a position that they don't want schools to open. I'm a Democrat. I have a kid. I kind of hope schools open uh, because we'd sort of like that part of our day back and it's good for our kid. And we're going to get into that in a minute. But he's lying when he says it's political. But he's not wrong when he says that it would be really bad for him politically. And this just goes to everything is about Trump. It's not like whether your kid is going to be safe going to school. It's about whether or not it, it hurts him politically. So he assumes they're doing it for political reasons. Uh, but the truth is, yeah, like if we get to November and people are still homeschooling, they're going to be pretty pissed. And they're probably going to take it out <laughs> on incumbents, particularly the Republican president. But what he doesn't realize is that's his fault. He's done so little to help us flatten the curve that if we end up in that situation for health reasons, it's his fault that it's going to hurt him politically. Yeah. And this is one of those areas where, and this is the mission of the show, is from a person-to-person -person angle here and just in our communities, no matter what your political party, this is an area where I think it's really important to show some humility and humanity because the science is really unclear, which we'll talk about in a second. And this is difficult either way, either opening or not opening. Uh, nobody's a wizard here. Nobody knows exactly how this is going to play out. And so this is the kind of area where uh, admitting what you don't know is really important. And in my hometown of New York City, the mayor has stated that he plans to reopen uh, New York City's public schools in September, but he's uh, indicated that it'll probably be on some kind of staggered schedule. Jason, as a parent, how do you think about this and, and where do you come down at the moment on whether we should close or open schools and in, in what way in the fall? Well, it's really tough because on the one hand, uh, like a week ago, I was thinking I'm the coach of True's Little League team. And, and I was telling a couple of the other parents like a week ago, I was like, you know what, since we're probably going to have school in the fall and the kids are going to be together, maybe we can do a fall baseball season. And I started to get really excited about it, and True was getting really excited. And then a week later, the way the numbers have escalated, particularly you know in our community over the last week, now I'm like, oh, maybe I gave my son false hope. And on the one hand, I really, really want him to go back to school, but I don't really know whether it's worth the risk. So just personally, yeah, I'm really of two minds. I mean, you have to balance, right? Like the isolation that young kids are experiencing versus the health risk to them somewhat, but mostly to the rest of us. And I don't know I don't know how to balance that scale right now. So as background for listeners who don't know me too well, uh, I used to be a school principal and I was the equivalent of a superintendent of a, a small network of schools in Tennessee. And I think it's important to flag for people who are in different parts of the country that, uh, you know, at least in Tennessee, we would open school in early August. So we're a few weeks away from some school systems, planned openings, and we're already behind. And my biggest advice to school districts right now is communicate your plans early, make certain assumptions, uh, and base your plans off of that. Because if you wait too long, and we're already pretty far along here, no matter where you are, you won't be able to implement any plan that you have. To sort of guide people through this, both as parents and as school systems, 
let's let's look at what we know about the science right now. The science here seems to be constantly shifting. So uh, if you look at Science Magazine, they did a good summary on, on the 7th of the literature here. And basically what they found is that children seem to be somewhere between a third to a half as likely to contract the virus uh, based on the science that we have right now with the lowest risks coming from the youngest children. And there was a study in France that showed that, that seemed to suggest that high school students are particularly contagious, while kids younger than 11 or 12 are likely not based on the evidence we have, but we're not talking about a large body of evidence. And so, Jason, to kick it back to you, like, I just sympathize with parents who keep shifting their opinions from from day to day. And so uh, what do you when you talk to other parents, what are what are people talking about? What's that conversation like right now? It, it usually starts with. So, OK, how does this work? What is the deal? What does the science say? I read one article that says this and I read another article that says this. And I think that that's one of the really chaotic and disorienting parts of this entire experience, whether you're a parent or just anybody else. Over the last few months, we've had to experience something that in the modern age we don't experience much, which is science not knowing the answer to something we expect it to know the answer to. And furthermore, it's something that we know at some point science will know the answer to. And it's not like, you know, one day humans will reach Mars. I mean, it's like in the next few months, we're going to know the answer to all these questions about this virus. You know, in the next year or so, we're going to have a vaccine. But we don't know when that's going to be. We don't know very much about how this virus works. We don't know whether to wipe down our groceries. We don't know whether to send our kids to school. And we're just not used to that anymore. And it's really scary and disorienting. And it's why politics and ideology is filling that vacuum combined with circumstance. And I think this is an interesting moment for me. And it makes me kind of introspective because, you know, when this started a few months ago, I was very hardline about shut everything down, schools, business, like shutdown orders. And, and a lot of people were saying, hey, look, I got to go out and make some money. And that's why I was saying, hey, well, the government needs to do something about that. We need to make sure we make people whole. We need to do subsidies. We need to send checks out. But I was also in the circumstance of financially being able to, to ride that out. And so that affected my ability to like, it affected my view and me saying like, yeah, we should shut it down. And now instead of being in the absolutely shut it down mode, I'm a parent who has a kid who's been at home for several months. I have work to do during the day. I have a kid who I think for his mental health needs to see his friends and his teachers. And I'm like, you know, I think I'm on the side of let's open the schools. And so I just think we need to recognize that when we don't know the science, which is something we're not used to, it's disorienting and politics, ideology, and personal perspective shapes it. But I don't have the personal perspective of somebody who has run schools. So Ravi, I'd be interested to know if you were in charge right now, what would you do? Yeah. And I think the principle at work here is no plan is worse than a flawed plan. So I think it's really important for districts to just roll out flawed plans, knowing that the data on the ground could change, but that if if you don't have a, a plan A right now that you communicate to families saying that this is the most likely scenario and we're planning for it, there will be chaos. And I think it's important for people to look at what is a school building. These are some of the least well-ventilated buildings in any city. The classrooms are crammed together with limited staff. And most school buildings, if not all school buildings for the most part, wouldn't meet the standards that we're asking malls to use for air ventilation when they open up. And so we have real problems in opening schools. And so when I was a school principal, I was infamous for not canceling school because, you know, I was, we went down to Tennessee where if it snows even a little bit, 
people cancel school down there and we would just keep school open uh, often sometimes being one of the only schools in the city in Nashville to keep schools open and we got criticized a lot for that so I come at this from a place of being usually pretty hesitant to cancel school because of what it means for kids and families but I would be pretty conservative here and so what I would do is I would prioritize based on the science that we just talked about that you know well, this could change by the time the podcast is tomorrow but based on the science that we have right now younger kids appear to be uh, a safer bet here so uh, what I would do is I would prioritize reopening in person for elementary schools, all kids, all elementary schools, and strongly consider keeping middle and high school virtual for the first few months of the school year, even if kids are less likely to spread the virus. That doesn't mean that they can't yet, right? So a lot of the data is saying maybe they're less likely by a certain factor, but still suggesting that they can spread it, especially as they get older. So we want to make sure that we don't congregate them all together in poorly ventilated buildings as much as possible. But in order to properly create the socially distanced classrooms, we're going to need enough space and staff. So you got to think about like, how can we space these kids out properly with the limited amount of space and staff we have? And so part of the way I would think about this as a district is either stagger the schedules where some kids come in some days and not on others, which really still sucks for parents. I don't know how much that really solves for parents, if I'm being honest. Or what I would I would try really hard, and this is why announcing plans early is really important and planning for them, is I would repurpose some of those middle school and high school instructors and buildings and then use those spaces so that we could space kids out even more and staff those areas properly, meaning you could bring kids uh, from upper elementary into middle schools, for example, and then shift the younger kids throughout the elementary school buildings. But, you know, let me just underline on this. What I'm describing is a massive, massive logistical lift, which is why we've got to make these decisions early. We've got to have political courage, and we've got to be able to move resources around really quickly. And this is just going to really suck for parents. I think everybody just needs to understand that whatever instruction we're going to have in the fall is going to be subpar. And I think for parents, what we can do is, frankly, just give school administrators and teachers a break. I mean, it's so easy when you're going through this to try and pick people who you can you know, aim some of your ire at. But teachers, the school janitors, they all have families too. And not only uh, are, should we be appreciating them more all the time, but like they're going in and being around all our kids that we don't know what level of vector our kids are for the virus. And they're the ones spending time with all the kids. So we probably can be a little patient. Shout out to all of our teachers out there, truly, truly doing God's work out there. We have this, uh, this segment that we call Quarantine Corner. What do you have for us this week on this segment? So it's sort of thematic because we were talking about school and we've been trying to keep some level of homeschooling going throughout the summer. And so every week we sit down with Drew. We have a big map that's like a scratch off map of the world. And we, quote unquote, visit a new country every week. Drew picks the country. Uh, this week he picked Iceland because we just watched the Mighty Ducks. And for some inexplicable <laughs> reason, Iceland in Mighty Ducks 2 is the enemy evil hockey team at I don't know why they picked Iceland, but... They're like it, the least evil country out there. It's, it's fascinating. It's, it's incredible. They're basically just like a stalking horse in the movie for Russia. Uh, they're clearly <laughs> the Russians, but they call them Iceland. But anyway, so True's like, I want to know more about Iceland. So we do Iceland, and the two facts that stuck out to True, and frankly to me as well, I don't know if you knew this, this is amazing to me, that in Iceland babies nap outside every single day no matter the temperature like freezing temperatures but that's not the most amazing thing 
Iceland has a museum that is dedicated to nothing but penises. It is and to a six-year-old boy. <laughs> I and was frankly, not expecting to a, that. Fr- frankly, to a 39-year-old man, this is a fact that just sticks with you. It's it's penises of like 220 different mammals, actual pe- including a human, and that's the entire museum. Anyway, so True is really into our country visits right now because those two facts were pretty strange to him. Yeah, don't tell Trump about that museum. I, I have a feeling he may want to replicate it here in the United <laughs> States. Uh, I, I wonder what the genesis of that story is, by the way. Was there some kind of Russian investor or something that was like, no, we can't do Russia. Uh, it has to be Iceland. I like to believe that when they wrote the movie, they just were entertaining themselves. And they were like, look, kids don't know the difference. What if we just made the villain Iceland? And uh, and I think to, uh, my guess is is that the people who made that movie still go back and watch it. And they're like, "Can you believe we got away with this?" <laughs> well, mine is going to be similarly weird this week. So when I was a kid growing up in in New York, uh, there was this uh, action park. It was called. It was a water park, and it was one of the first water parks in the United States. And my my uncle and my grandfather took me there at a really really young age, and it was the most dangerous place ever. So there used to be cliffs that you would jump off of. There was uh, one ride, which was just a rope that you would grab, <laughs> and then uh, and then you'd fling yourself into the, uh, the water from a really big height. It used to be called the Tarzan Swing. This doesn't feel like Staten Island. This feels like the Lake of the Ozarks or something. Yeah, well, this <laughs> was in, it was in Vernon, New Jersey. Uh, needless to say, as time has gone on, I've wondered whether my memory of this place was playing tricks on me, and maybe I was exaggerating it. And thinking, hey, I was a little kid and it seemed really scary, but maybe it really wasn't. And I'd be at dinner parties trying to describe some of these rides and people would be like, that doesn't sound like it could have existed. And so this past week, a book came out called Action Park. And it's by the son of the creator of the park. His name's Andy Mulvihill. And he describes creating the park, <laughs> uh, keeping it open in the face of massive liability. Uh, unfortunately, lots of deaths that occurred in the park. Oh, so a geez. lot of the folklore was true. And he then... He kind of lays out a bit of a libertarian political argument alongside his stories of Action Park. And I have to say, this is one of the most amazing, riveting reads that I've ever had. Like, Hmm. I think this was like maybe since the Bad Blood Theranos book. I've never been more gripped by a book. I was sitting in an outdoor coffee shop in Charlottesville reading this thing, laughing out loud. There was like a family (laughs) across from me. Like, who is this crazy person? And don't just take my word for it, listeners. Uh, Apparently, there was a 10-way bidding war in Hollywood for the rights to make this a TV show. Oh my so this God. is good stuff. So it's, it's Action Park by Andy Mulvihill. We're going to pause for a second to tell you about a show we're listening to, Encyclopedia Womanica. For too long, history lessons have glossed over the truly essential contributions women have made to history. That's where Encyclopedia Womanica comes in. This podcast from Wonder Media Network aims to change the narrative by introducing the pioneers, scientists, chefs, and more from antiquity to today who've shaped our society. Every weekday, host Jenny Kaplan dives into the trials, tragedies, and triumphs of this diverse group of groundbreaking women. And the best part is, each episode is only five minutes long. The bite-sized episodes pack painstakingly researched content into fun, entertaining, and addictive daily adventures. You may or may not already know these women, but you definitely should. Subscribe to Encyclopedia Womanica wherever you get your podcasts. So in, in another segment that we call This Week in Misinformation, this week uh, we're going to talk about the speech that the president gave at Mount Rushmore on July 4th. And it was a rare prepared speech, so he was reading from text. 
and he laid out what could be his re-election message. Angry mobs are trying to tear down statues of our founders, deface our most sacred memorials, and unleash a wave of violent crime in our cities. Many of these people have no idea why they're doing this, but some know exactly what they are doing. They think the American people are weak and soft and submissive. But no, the American people are strong and proud, and they will not allow our country and all of its values, history, and culture to be taken from them. So this is the terrain that the president wants to be on. He's making the bet that at a time of a global pandemic and recession, Americans most want to talk about statues of dead people. Jason, what do you make of this message? When I saw him do this, it made me think a lot about what you've said over the last few weeks about how the Republican trick is to take the most extreme examples of you know whatever the debate is, the most extreme liberal examples, and, and try and elevate those to be the centerpiece of the debate. And and so then when Tammy Duckworth was interviewed this week and she was asked about whether or not to take down a statue of George Washington, and she sort of hedged. And the reason she hedged, I don't think it's because she was dodging the question. I think it's because this is not the central argument going on. It's not about whether to take down statues of George Washington. And so I think most people on this issue, if they're asked a question like that, they haven't really thought about that question. And so that's probably why, you know, she hedged a little bit. Well, of course, then Tucker Carlson pounced on that and acted like she didn't hedge. He acted like she, you know, registered a domain name for a website called endgeorgewashington.com or something and just said, like, that's what she's all about. And then people probably are aware that he went out and called her a coward and said she hates America and all this crazy stuff. But when Duckworth does speak in public, you're reminded what a deeply silly and unimpressive person she is. Here's Tammy Duckworth from over the weekend telling us it's time to get rid of George Washington. In your view, where does it end? Should statues, for example, of George Washington come down? Well, let me just say that we should start off by having a national dialogue on it um, at some point. So what to make of all of this? Well, it's long been considered out of bounds to question a person's patriotism. It's a very strong charge, and we try not ever to make it. But in the face of all of this, the conclusion can't be avoided. These people actually hate America. There's no longer a question about that. But the misinformation part of this is the part where they are trying to make it about, you know, people like George Washington and, and other people that you know, most Americans have been taught to admire or just are seen as, you know, without them, the country would not exist. And so it it's about forcing Americans to decide whether or not being anti-racist means getting rid of things that they learned that they thought were facts. And so that's the stress they're trying to create. That's the misinformation of it. And I think the most important way to respond to this when anybody tries to make it about uh, George Washington or, or or whoever, is to say, look, the people who started this movement about taking down certain statues, they started it years ago, and it doesn't have anything to do with any of this, and that still has nothing to do with it. This is not about statues that were erected hundreds of years ago. This is about statues that were erected in the last 50, 60 years in order to intimidate certain people. They started in the South particularly, putting up statues of Confederate generals and Confederate politicians as a way of saying to black people, know your place, that you know this, you live in a place where you were once enslaved. Don't be too assertive about your rights. Don't, don't stand up for your rights. 
it's about intimidation. And that's what this debate is about. And so I think it's important to say to people, look, I, I don't have an opinion necessarily on that. Or maybe you do. And if you do, go ahead and, and, and assert your opinion on George Washington. But my guess is you're like most people in this movement where the statues and the history that you're interested in telling the truth about is the history that's about intimidating certain Americans. And so the example, because I believe in personalizing things that I would use is just this last week in Kansas City, the Parks Board, and it'll go to the City Council now, voted to remove from this big central fountain in, in Kansas City the name J.C. Nichols. J.C. Nichols it was a real estate developer um, around the turn of the last century who basically created most of what you see on the west side of Kansas City. And if anybody's ever visited Kansas City, it's the Country Club Plaza. It's like one of the first places people go. That's been J.C. Nichols uh, Plaza, and there's this big fountain there. Well, J.C. Nichols was a racist and an anti-Semite. And he actually drew the lines to keep families like my own, I'm Jewish, from being able to move into a lot of these neighborhoods. And I'm sure, you know, 80 years later, he was probably rolling over in his grave when I was the state representative for that part of town. But <laughs> but for me, like when I've driven by J.C. Nichols uh, Plaza or J.C. the Fountain, I'm not going to say like it was really, really upsetting to me, but I've always thought about it. I've always thought about the fact that we name something in my hometown in which my son is a sixth generation Kansas City and we named something after someone who didn't want my son to be able to live where he lives or me or my parents or my grandparents or any of us to live where we have. And imagine like everywhere you go, there's statues of people who fought to enslave your, you know, relatives. That that doesn't make any sense. And that's worth changing. And that's where we should keep the debate. Yeah. And I think about this where I think they're trying to move the terrain to the harder cases, right? They want to talk about George yeah. Washington and Thomas Jefferson, who are presidents of the United States, which is just a, a I have a, an opinion about it, but it's a, it's a tougher question than, say, the Confederate flag or Confederate generals. And it's worth reminding people when they bring this up that the debate that's actually central, not even central, let's say it is, it is a part of national public policy debate right now is that there's a huge defense uh, appropriations bill that is important to keep the safety of our country, and the president is threatening to hold it up because uh, as part of that, Elizabeth Warren slipped in some language around changing the names of bases from Confederate generals. And it's important to remind people what the Confederacy was. It was a group of people going to war with the United States. They were going against the United States. And so honoring those people, and they were doing it explicitly. If you read the articles of the Confederacy, you read anything about that history, uh, they were doing it explicitly to keep slavery going. Um, the idea that we would recognize people who went to war against our country to keep the evil of slavery going, we can all agree that that was just wrong and let's get rid of those things. So you don't have to go to the terrain of Jefferson and Washington if you want to. And sure, like talk about Jefferson and Washington if you want to, but like that's not the, the national public policy debate that we're having right now. And I think it proves the point. The point about the military bases proves the point that this is purely a political move by Trump. And And I think when people bring it up, you can address it that way. I mean, the reason it proves the point is the Pentagon has said like, yeah, we're cool with that. Like we're, we're happy to change those. And, and the president is the one who's like, no, no. The president who, by the way, is from Queens is like, no, 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 that's <laughs> yeah. a super important history. And I'm sure he knows, I'm sure he knows all about General Bragg. Yeah, he's read all of Shelby Foote and <laughs> yeah. David Blight. And, yeah. I mean, you know. <laughs> Shiloh is his favorite book. Uh, no, like he, so look, I think that it's, it's very clear that it is about politics. To say that having these bases continue to be named after Confederate generals is you have to suspend 
your your disbelief about history enough to say, oh, well, these were clearly really good generals. I mean, they, no, they lost, first of all. But on top of that, you have to suspend your disbelief at the same level you have to suspend your disbelief to say things like, well, the Civil War was really about states' rights. Or my favorite, the Civil War, and this is what, by the way, growing up where I did, this is what I was taught in school, is that the Civil War was really about economics. And I remember being like 10 years old and going home and arguing with my parents and being like, no, I'm pretty sure it was about economics. And now if I were there, I would argue with my 10-year-old self and I would gently say, yes, it was about the economics of not having to pay people to do work, which means it was about slavery. So all of this is an enormous level of suspended disbelief at the same level as you know, Tucker Carlson saying that somebody who, you know, Tammy Duckworth, who who left two legs in Iraq, uh, is a coward, because none of them actually understand what sacrifice for the country is about. I've campaigned with Tammy Duckworth. What she does on a day-to-day basis is continued enormous service to the country. Senator Duckworth, as she travels, as she campaigns, as she does anything, is in a considerable amount of pain. And just anytime she gives a speech, she she stands on prosthetic limbs and it's it's painful and it and it really takes a lot out of her and she's determined to do it there's nothing remotely fucking cowardice about Tammy Tuckworth at all and so in another segment we call unsolicited campaign advice uh, my big advice is just going to mirror what i talked about schools right so us campaigns you're facing a very similar situation that schools are meaning you're heading towards a very uncertain fall and you have to make certain decisions about your resources and what you com- communicate to your supporters. And so my big advice is the same mantra, which is no decision is worse than a flawed decision. And so what I would say to you is when you're making decisions about your resources, and particularly whether you are budgeting for quote unquote field, my advice to you is budget and move your campaign and communicate clearly under the assumption that you will not be knocking doors in the fall. And just make that decision now. You can have a contingency plan that you could dust off in the event that you could be doing doors aggressively. But outside of what Jason talked about, which is like a safe texting people when you're uh, in the neighborhood and getting them to come out, I wouldn't invest in a robust door-to-door campaign that's assuming people are going to be out there within the community, in person, physically with people. And I would shift a lot of resources to advertising, especially digital advertising. We have some awards to give out this week, and our first award is what we call the Lindsey Graham Total Capitulation and Submissile Award. It's reserved, uh, just to remind you, for a Republican politician who knows better but is playing the part out of cynical calculation. And Jason, Lindsey Graham thwarted us again this week, uh, and he even showed some courage by defending NASCAR driver, driver Bubba Wallace. Somebody's, uh, so somebody's got a general election going on. Somebody made yes. it out of the primary and uh, yeah, they're facing Jamie Harrison and they realized like perhaps they should sound like, uh, you know, practical occasionally. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll see how long this lasts. Uh, I still hold out hope that the, that the real Lindsey Graham will, will show back up here. But since we can't give it to him this week, uh, who can we recognize this week? So I'm going with Tom Cotton. Senator Cotton, great to have you here this morning. A lot to get to. Tom Cotton gave an interview where he used the term lethal weapons over and over and over again, which, you know, Tom Cotton is a is a former army officer. Lethal weapons is not like a term we threw around all the time. This is clearly something that was given to him in talking points from the White House because he said it like a bunch of times. 
And what he's doing is he's trying to repeat a lie often enough about Russia, which is that the president is very hawkish on Russia, that folks who watch Fox News will just go, yeah, yeah, yeah the president's hawkish about, hawkish about Russia, and they'll, they'll just believe it, which is kind of true. You say it enough times and they will. But what he does is he's pressed on, you know, the president kind of giving in all the time to, to Putin. And he says, well, if that were true, uh, then why would the president have sent lethal weapons to Ukraine to battle Russia. And he goes through some other bogus examples and he says, and this is my favorite part, this is how they do it. It's not enough to just make up facts. What you do is then you you say the complete opposite of the truth and you say it with such authority and passion that it must be true. Otherwise, nobody would say that because he says every time the president is hawkish on Russia, the Democrats curl up in a fetal position. I would note every time the president takes a tough action on Russia, the Democrats who beat their chest so hard saying that they're Russia hawks always curl up in the fetal position. They didn't want to withdraw from those treaties. Mm-hmm. President Obama and Joe Biden didn't send lethal weapons to Ukraine. They always roll over in the Middle East, uh, standing up for Russia's allies like Iran. It's not the, Demo- the Democrats are not the ones who are taking a tough line on Russia here. It's President Trump. Now. I haven't actually seen either of those things happen. I have not seen Democrats curl up in a fetal position, and I haven't seen the president be hawkish on Russia. But either way, the reason I think that he's the award winner is because, you know, he's just omitting the fact that Congress said the president had to do that and that the president still didn't do it. And then he did it after he got caught being like, "Eh, you know, maybe we'll send that to you, you know, if you do some things for me. Didn't we have an impeachment about the president withholding aid to Ukraine? See, that's the problem, Robbie. You're watching this fake news and you think that the president was impeached. That shit never happened. Uh-uh. And in a few years, by the way, when they interview former President Trump about something that happened during his administration, he's going to be like, I was never president. What are you talking about? <laughs> oh, man. Well, anything else for Tom Cotton before we move on to our next award? The reason I think that this is the award for the Total Submissile and Capitulation Award is because the Democrats used to be wrong about Russia. I was wrong. I remember in 2012 when Mitt Romney said, our greatest adversary on the national stage is Russia, and President Obama and all the rest of us kind of laughed that off. Governor Romney, I'm glad that you recognize that al-Qaeda is a threat, because a few months ago when you were asked what's the biggest geopolitical threat facing America, you said Russia. Not al-Qaeda. You said Russia. In the 1980s or now calling to ask for their foreign policy back because, you know, the Cold War has been over for 20 years. And now I look back and I'm like, man, Romney got that right. And if I were the Republicans and I were being intellectually honest, I would be talking about that all the time. I would be saying, look, we've been right about this for years and the Democrats were wrong. But instead, they refuse to do that because they have to go with this, you know, fiction that Trump spins and they missed an opportunity to actually make a decent point about us. This week, we're going to skip the Kellyanne Conway Alternative Facts Award. I'm sorry, I know everybody looks forward to it all week. But instead, we're going to recognize somebody from the progressive space who makes a compelling argument that you can learn from. Now, we can call this the Hank Newsom Smart Argument Award because that's our inaugural winner. Hank Newsom is the New York president of Black Lives Matter, and he went on Fox News and he dropped the hammer. I love this clip so much. Good to have you with us tonight, sir. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. And this is a guy who probably has not done a lot of cable news hits, right? And that's really the game plan for the the, the people who book the guests at, at Fox News, is they, they like to have people on who are part of the left, but they're maybe more fringe part of the left, and they've not done a lot of media stuff. They don't have media training, and they're like, we're going to make these people the representation of the left. And they tried to do this to Hank, and it backfired big time, because they come after Hank for a comment that he made that violence is sometimes necessary. 
And they're thinking, probably they didn't even look to see what he meant when he said that, but they're also thinking he's not going to get a chance to clarify that statement. And you also have called, uh, said that violence is sometimes necessary in these situations. What exactly is it that you hope to achieve through violence? Wow. Um, it's interesting that you would pose the, that question like that because this country is... So it turns out what he meant was that if you have an officer who is clearly assaulting and possibly murdering somebody, that there has to be some appointed people in the community who can exercise self-defense, who have training, who can save lives. Now, at first, he didn't get a chance to say that, but he did a great job of forcing the host politely to let him finish his thought. Now, when we talk about but violence, you just we said talk in that about video, using self-defense to, you, to you the, said, I we use, that, we use, why are you screaming and not allowing I, me to talk, well, ma'am? Because you asked you're me a question, allow me to answer. Go ahead. I'm in the process of answering, ahead, and I I'm won't listening. be that much longer. I'm listening. Okay? Then we get to my favorite part, and it's the part we can learn from. As she says to him, this really hypocritical thing, which is that, Basically, without saying it, that when uh, black Americans, when African Americans are uh, advocating self-defense or in any way being armed, well, that is violence. Whereas when uh, white folks show up at a protest against the fact that they can't get haircuts wearing AR-15 slung across their back, that's exercising the Second Amendment. Now, what most people would do is just say what I just said, but that's not what he did. What he said was, look, I thought that you at this network supported the Second Amendment. We're talking about protecting lives, and there's nothing more American than that. And when we talk about uplifting and upholding the Second Amendment, I think that you should be applauding me, the, seeing as though you guys are huge supporters of the Second Amendment. All right. You, first of all, you, my, I've never talked about my stance on the Second Amendment. Um, you know, that that's my... I'm not criticizing you or praising you. You don't support you. the Second I'm Amendment? Only, you don't support I, the Second Amendment? That's not my role here to talk I'm about my I'm asking you a opinion. question. Do you support the Second Amendment? I, the Second Amendment is part of our Constitution. Do you support the Second Amendment, yes or no? A lot of your Listen viewers would, would like to know if you support uh, the Second well, Amendment. Well, that's, that's fine. But but that's not why we're here. And what I, you, Don't you, you support the Second Amendment? Which is my favorite part of the entire clip, because that's when the anchor does this whole thing that you can see in her eyes, which is she starts by saying, well, I've never stated my position on the Second Amendment. And then you can see in her face that she has realized that she's on Fox News and that that, <laughs> that mere comment might get her canceled right away. So then she starts backtracking and she's like, you know, it's a part of our Constitution. And, and then by the end of this interview, uh, she's like, well, I think we had a really good conversation. You actually make some great points. Like, it was awesome. I appreciate where you're coming from and I appreciate you coming on tonight. And I know you're very passionate and that you, um, that you want what's best. Uh, so everybody has different aims and different ways to get there, but I appreciate you sharing I, your thoughts with I just us want black liberation and black sovereignty Thank by you very any much. means necessary. Thank you for being here. Yeah, she was a very different person in the second half of this interview than she was in the first. Yeah, she <laughs> underestimated her opponent, and he did something really smart. He just put it in her terms, framed it in a way that's more the way she would usually talk about things, and then it had her answer questions and sort of put her politely on the defensive. It was pretty cool, and I think it's something we can learn from. So we have another segment we call Midlife Crisis Corner. We kind of bring to the table just stuff that's happening in our life, whether it's fitness, sleep, nutrition, sanity, et cetera. Jason, what do you have for us this week? This is like a, I'm older than a lot of people thing. Uh, I finally figured out Instagram, and I'm pretty excited about it. I finally figured out that Instagram is what I'm doing versus Twitter, which is like what I think, right? And I this week, 
I occasionally the last couple of weeks, I, I posted pictures of food that I eat. People love to hate on what I eat. Occasionally they like it, but you know, <laughs> it's one of people's favorite things is to be like, oh, it's so disgusting because I, I eat pretty healthy. And so then I was like, you know what? Do y'all want me to just post what I eat for an entire day? And 82% of people said yes. So I did. By the way, it's exhausting. I could never be a real influencer because posting <laughs> that much in a day is too time consuming. But I did this and like my Instagram following increased by like, like 15% in a day. So what I realized is like people don't on Instagram want to hear what I think. They're curious, you know, like what I put in my cottage cheese, which is incredible to me. So I finally figured that out. Yeah, I've enjoyed that. And I, I put it a lot of people in that direction. Uh, and hopefully we get more of that content from you uh, in the weeks ahead. I got to figure so, out what's next. Perhaps, I don't know, a tour of my home gym, really riveting stuff for people. I'm so jealous about the home gym, by the way. I'm I'm making a gym in the the roof of the uh, my office building in Manhattan, and it's it's going to be cool in its own way, but it will be uh, nothing in comparison to what you have. But your workouts, my, uh, gym or no gym, your workouts are so savage that I'm just I'm trying to <laughs> I've catch been up using, to. I've been using the streetscapes to work out. I don't know if you saw. It I on saw my that was amazing. My fa- so so speaking of Instagram, Ravi has a little video of him doing pull ups on. Is that like a stoplight? Yeah, and I, I have to shout out to people, uh, and this is my friend Sean from Tone House in New York City. I had seen him do that, and so basically I took like the little, the yellow things that tell you whether you could walk or not, and they, they form like a triangle. So you could like use the triangle to do pull-ups. My but favorite my, my part big... of that video is the guy who goes by on the bicycle, and he's taking, he's taking video a video of, of me. <laughs> that was great. Uh, People in my neighborhood think I'm nuts, too, just like everybody else out there. But my big optimizing moment is uh, I wrote a screenplay back in December, and I, and one of my big quarantine wins was I got signed by a big Hollywood agency. And it was like a big win in life, and it's a story I really want to tell. But I've had this sort of second act syndrome, and I've had a hard time sitting down to write my second screenplay. And so I went to a friend of mine, and I used this web- website called Stick K, which allows you to set a goal. And then have your friend hold you accountable for that goal. And you can come up with any way you want to, to hold yourself accountable. But what I did was I gave myself a deadline. I made my friend basically the trustee of this goal. And if I don't meet the goal, she has my permission to send in my name a $500 donation to a Republican super PAC. And so I'm super motivated to finish this screenplay. This is also proof, the fact that you're willing to risk this is proof that you are not like planning to run for some political office in New York. The fact that you're willing to risk the possibility of somebody having an entire primary campaign ready to go against you, which is he gave $500 to a Republican super PAC, demonstrates uh, that you're you're genuinely not an aspiring politician. Well, that's a good point. So maybe uh, my mom will stop asking. Mom, if you're listening. All right. Well, we have a section called Grab an Oar, uh, where we just you know give you some action at the end of the episode. Jason, do you have anything for us this week? Yeah, I'm going to go old school this week and remind people that one of the best ways they can get involved in the uh, in the fight is to get involved in the fight against voter suppression. And the reason I say it's old school is it's because it's the organization that I founded a few years ago, Let America Vote. Uh, Let America Vote has a great program set up where you can text bank from home, you can you can phone bank from home to make a difference in, in several elections in states where it really needs to be a message really needs to be sent about voter suppression for this election. Folks can go to letamericavote.org. 
Now, before we sign off, uh, have a, a challenge, a call to action for everybody regarding the podcast. You know, this is only the third episode uh, since we've come back. The audience has been great. It's continuing to grow, but it's still important that we let everybody know that it's back. And on top of that, for the people who didn't know about it in the first place, that the audience evangelizes to everybody about how great it is. So do us a favor, just like before, we want you to go on social media. We want you to tell people why you love the podcast, what you love about it, why they should listen to it. But this week we're going to watch. So make sure you tag us. Whoever does it in the most creative humor is appreciated, but regardless in the most creative way, we have a gift bag that we're going to send you. Uh, So we're looking forward to seeing what people do now. uh, In the meantime, remember, We all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch, Edie Allard. Special thanks to Diana Kander. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard Professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.